This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of season two of Sequelizers. This show is all about fixing the bad sequels to good movies, because if there was a good movie and it was followed by a terrible sequel, the five of us, specifically the other four guys on the show, are going to try and fix it. (laughs) I'm the laziest of the five of us. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of very energetic and enthusiastic sequelizers. Firstly, over to Matthew Stogden. Uh, Hello. You filthy animal. And Tom Martin. What? Formerly... Known as the Street Sharks. Long in the past, long in the past. Yep, long forgotten. A long distant memory. Yep. And of course, over to Alec Plowman. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And of course, Mrs. Stuart Ashen. Hello. This episode, we're going to be sequelizing the family-friendly, not classic, Home Alone 3, because that film is bloody terrible. We should address the fact that a lot of um, people would say, hang on, hang on, what about Home Alone 2? Yeah, we did debate this. Which is which is the film where the rot sets in? Because Cause that's our general rule, isn't it? Yeah. We said that about Pirates of the Caribbean, we said that about Predator 2, trying to justify seemingly well-received movies. But A lot of people don't like Home Alone 2. A lot of people don't like the first Home Alone, to be fair. I'm not a huge a fan. Very... I've got to say, I don't dislike it. But it's it's, very it's much not another a... Independence Day, is it, Stuart? We're not no, due no, for no. another... <laughs> no, no, this is, I'm entirely... On Home Alone, and I'm the same on I Home Alone well. too, which yeah. is effectively the same film, I, but in New York. I think I mean, it does have Donald Trump in it. The second one, which is, <laughs> yeah. immediately qualifies it as being something that's terrible. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder how long it's going to be before they have to edit him out due to like historical sensitivity. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! <laughs> At this rate, six months, maybe a year. Yeah, I think ultimately the interesting thing with regards to Home Alone, less that it's a as Jack said, a family film, arguably. Um, it's more the sense that it's a Christmas movie. And people's nostalgia for Christmas movies is, mm. I watched this as a kid. When I, was, I mean, the, the great example is A Christmas Story with the mm. leg lamp and the BB gun and all that sort of stuff. People say, oh, it's, oh, it's, a, it's the pinnacle. It's the greatest Christmas movie. I love it. And then you watch it or you show it to someone you know, now and say, what do you think of this? And say, that's a boring, weird pile of shit. It's not good. And people say, no, 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 it's the best Christmas movie. And there's this really heated debate about Christmas movies. I genuinely think it's nothing to do with the actual merit of the film itself. And someone's literally come to your house and said, your Christmas is shit. And that's how people genuinely seem to take that criticism on board. Nostalgia is a huge thing with that. I mean, like one of the reasons Raiders of the Lost Ark is my second favourite film of all time is because that's what I used to watch at Christmas all the time. It just reminds me of uh, it being on the TV at Christmas and... All those happy memories, and I think people do get very defensive about their uh, their Christmas movies. Not not this one, hopefully, because it's fucking awful. It, um, it is an interesting one with, with Home Alone 1 and 2, because I think the big thing that they fall down on critically is that people 
question the plausibility of all of the traps that he's able to to set up in the movie and it's one of those things where i think you just have to go with it and if you can go with that premise if you can get behind that premise it's a good film if you can't get behind that premise you're going to struggle with it and i think that's why the first one has mixed critical reception but has really gone on to be regarded as a as a classic even though people were very mixed on it at the well, time it's also the increasing implausibility of them doing the same thing twice like in terms yeah. of being or three that, times or three or times four times, or four times. five times like Five, five times two straight to yeah videos um but, you know the fact that even uh you know that his parents certainly in the first sort of you know the first few would actually be that incompetent to leave him behind and keep doing it and and actually to be that bad to leave him again in the same way where the traps are somewhat implausible for him to be that you know there's a weird useless. interesting um because uh, the, the other similar sort of film at the time was um baby's day out Oh. Which is this, that, that's where it takes it to the full extent of fuck off. It becomes like a 60s cartoon. It's just ridiculous. Vern Troyer was the baby, wasn't he? I think that might be Jesus Christ. Yeah. No. Well, only in stunt shots. Yes. Not actually in oh, the oh, okay. <laughs> My God. That'd be I terrifying. Saying, I know there was, it was like triplets or twins or something like that, but yes. Um, Your baby was, is a grown man. <laughs> it's like, this is uh, insensitive. Now, I was going to say that, effectively speaking, all written by John Hughes. Who had an addition? Well, I think this, the, there's a lot of backstory about John Hughes and the Home Alone films about how he wrote them as a very different intended thing, and I think through Columbus and the studio, they became this very slapstickery sort of thing. Because obviously, John Hughes not really known for his slapstick; he's known for his emotional characters and all sorts of things and very relatable scenarios, arguably. And you know, you emotionally project onto these people, but nobody is emotionally projecting onto fucking anything from Home Alone except, oh, that's nice, at the end. Um, more probably. But no, the, the traps are literally absurdist nonsense, literally Tom and Jerry shit. But we all go along with it because it, I would argue, because of the acting. Uh, think, yeah, Macaulay really sells it as well. Yeah. Macaulay Carl's performance in the first two Home Alone films is awesome. It makes those films, yeah. literally. And that might lead us on to talking about why Home Alone 3 doesn't work, because there's a <laughs> big... Bland. Big Bland. Not set at Christmas. A bowl of dry cornflakes is the uh, main character in that. Scarlett Johansson's also there somewhere. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> the first appearance of Scarlett Johansson in a actual like speaking role. So before we, before we get to fixing it, let me give you some synopsis for Home Alone 3. Once again, it's about 20 words long, because... I mean, Home Alone isn't known for its plot exactly, is it? So, four high-tech North Korean spies steal a top-secret microchip, and to full customs, they hide it in a remote-controlled toy car. Through a baggage mix-up at the airport, grumpy old Mrs. Hess gets the toy and gives it to her neighbour, eight-year-old Alex. The spies want to get the toy back before their clients get angry and decide to burglarise every house on Alex Street trying to find the chip. But Alex, unsurprisingly, is prepared for their visit. Also, he's on his own in his home but he's not really he's on his own in the home for very limited amounts of time because his mum keeps coming back from work to check on him because he's got chicken pox yeah yeah it's more kind of more believable than just being left at home by accident i guess but her coming back over and over again kind of ruins the tension of the whole thing yeah literally just you could solve this whole thing immediately. I mean, at least with Home Alone 1 and 2, as much as says, uh, suspension of disbelief, this whole, well, why don't we just contact... No, 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 the police did go around, and you've seen that the phone lines are out. There are all these reasons why they set up saying, no, 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 it's not just a quick, simple check of, like, problem there's solved. A, there's a real sense of kind of jeopardy. Yeah. In it, in it. There's, there's also that thing, um, the <clears throat> entire reasoning for them being there, the whole North Korean 
plot and toy car oddly and, topical in yeah. 2017 yeah. considering this movie is 20 years old but yeah. it is again it is just such a it takes it in if you thought that you were going to have to just go with it for home alone one this takes it into the levels of of absolutely classical and they were obviously stuck in a position where it was like how the hell do we make a, a home alone movie um, we need to it's coming up till christmas and we because originally it was meant to come out in 94 with a teenage Macaulay Culkin. It was. But Macaulay Culkin retired from acting at that yep. point. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they couldn't do it anymore. Um, so then it comes around a lot a lot later. Um, they tried making it a couple of times before that as well, and it just got kind of stuck in production yeah. hell for a few years. Hell. Mm. Development hell indeed. And um, the thing is, that, that I don't want to bemoan a child at the end of the day. It's not really fair to do that. But um, Alex Lynn's... I was looking up his name because I forgot the fuck he was. Um, Alex Lynn's the little mophead kid who plays Alex, the, the main character. Um, he's um, just has no charm, no charisma. Well, that, it, he's in a very difficult position, to be fair, because you're going up we against... We were following up against, yeah, Macaulay exactly. Culkin, who really, other than, you know, the only other person for greatest child actor of all time, the only other contender would be someone like Shirley Temple. And... Or Jake Lloyd, obviously. Oh, <laughs> I would say um, about the kids in Stranger Things. Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, I think there are there are others, sure. But I mean, to go with um, no, I know um, you mean yeah, iconic yeah. Little, little tiny yeah. child who becomes this huge uh, staple icon of um, and things. Well, most accurately, an obnoxiously cute kid who knows they're obnoxiously cute and then has a really horrible descent into mm. Macaulay Culkin. Three, he's. I mean, me and Alec were talking about this earlier. He's just kind of, just really good, and he's a really good little boy, and that yeah. is it. It's very bland. And then he tries Culkin. to kill a bunch of spies, well, as you do. I mean, yeah. Culkin has a bit of a mischievous edge. Absolutely, his, absolutely. His performance and his characterization. My partner, I'm going to jump in here and say my partner, Philippe, what, um, actually does um, <laughs> uh, writing on uh, not my sequelizing partner, my IRL. Partner. Oh, oh, okay. Um, Doctor Doctor Philippa Antunis does some uh, works on children's culture, and she talks. She's done work on Home Alone three, and makes the argument that a lot of it is down to parenting, the way parenting changes, because you have the rise of what's called attachment. The, parenting the trends in the nineties, right, right, and this idea with attachment parenting that comes in um, is that children are basically adorable and perfect and that every children can do no wrong children are are completely innocent so you lose that drama because alex is just fundamentally good as a character he is whereas with macaulay culkin of course he starts the film by being a little shit and in part the movie is then about his redemption and is about his his growth arc because he has to it's a coming of age movie he has to learn to be an adult you don't get that in hello home john alone. hughes coming of age movies yeah, mm-hmm. see, yeah. you don't get that in home alone 3 because alex the kids start not alex the kids <laughs> hey. um, we wish alex, alex starts off in shinobi land uh, oh god i wish <laughs> stop spoiling our pitch um, <laughs> alex starts off as perfect at the beginning of the movie and then ends as perfect so there's no real character development there because the era at the time doesn't allow for it what the way people um think about kids is like oh, they can't have that kind of art because they can't be shitty in the first place because they're all good right stuff. yeah yeah so yeah it's all the problems and i think yeah you're right alec it's it, weird kind of getting in depth about home alone 3 is not something i ever thought <laughs> it's a, a higher kind of discussion about parenting trends in the 90s i never thought home alone 3 would possibly enforce that kind of discussion let's go a bit more lowbrow Predictions for Rotten Tomatoes percentage, gentlemen. 
I'm saying 40s. 41. I, I actually know this one, so I'm going to... Okay, I'm gonna okay. Alec and, Alec and his family's in, intense knowledge of Home Alone 3 has, <laughs> yeah. has I mean, betrayed him. Studied, my understanding is it's studied akin to the Bible at the Plowman residence. But, um, <laughs> They're in deep like the Mafia. Yep. You've just got like a picture of Macaulay Culkin up on the mantelpiece. and like. <laughs> I'm going to go 31%. Interesting. Stuart Ashen. Mm, I'm going to cut the difference at 36%. Someone is one point off. It's Tom Martin. It's 30%. On Rotten yeah, Tomatoes, average score of 4.4, which is pretty yeah, low, yeah. pretty low. It's about sequelizer's average. It is, it is. We're, we hovered around the sort of five-ish mark in season one, apart from Exorcist 2, of course, which I bring up at every given opportunity, because that, that is garbage. Yeah. One very prominent critic, though, loved it, didn't he, Jack? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. In, in, in my research, <laughs> old Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, and I quote... It is fresh, very funny, and better than the first two. We should point out that Ebert really doesn't like Home Alone one or two. Yeah, that's I kind of the defining the factor. Problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The franchise. No, that was a that was a bad that was a bad shout, Roger. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Ebert. And it's odd that it's weirdly topical in this kind of political climate, talking about North Korea and shit like that. I had no idea North Korea was even mentioned in this movie. Not that it's a big political discussion mm. in the film. It's just like, oh, they're kind of working for the North Korean government. Like, I guess yeah. it just, at the time, just acted as a kind of an, a, a convenient kind of boogeyman kind of, oh. Yeah. Well, it was, it's weird because it was always the Russians and then it's like, oh, fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, oh, North Korea. And so, for example, then you get things like um, Die Another Day. And it's like, oh, I'm going to militarize zone. I'm going to use hovercrafts to fly over there. And it's like, what the fuck is a North Korea? That kind of thing. <laughs> was it John Hughes who wrote this one again? It was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a very strange, it's a very strange film coming from him so as well. But weird. then I assume they, I assume it got tampered with quite a lot mm. in the mind. Yeah. yeah. But I, know, I remember reading something with him somewhere where he was talking about trying to find an angle in this one to make it a different Home Alone for a for a different period. Because I think a lot of time has passed since the first Home Alone by the true, time they true. made this movie as well. And they it is almost like it's a reboot. Pretty much. It, it just ignores three, yeah. it might as well be a different It's totally standalone yeah. compared to the other two, yeah. 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 There's not like, oh, my friend Kevin or whatever. Like, There's no real kind of... There's no like... It's It is, yeah. yeah Chicago yeah. Tales from Chicago Kids. But it's not the the bandits from the first two or anything no, like that. No, it's no. suddenly North Korean spies in a remote control <laughs> car. Yeah, I, mean, I think it just all feels a bit high concept um, in a way that doesn't really work because that's actually the great thing about the first time alone is while the... the kind of crazy traps and everything else maybe stretches the realms of plausibility actually their setup like harry and marv the way that they're casing the neighborhood feels entirely plausible and they set that bit up quite well them as villains we believe them work they're believable villains and home alone 3 just completely throws that out it goes very slapstick um i mean uh, the the Home Alone films are really hard PG. If you tried to do Home Alone now, it'd be a straight 12A. It would be a very strong, like, mm, this is not going to be for kids. Um, whereas um, Home Alone 3 feels like a proper, let's, let's make something and for this the family. Is, this is something that actually critics at the time were a bit mm, on Home Alone because of the violence. Because it was... Um... Yeah, some of the traps like legitimately yeah, would kill you. I was like you. 8 or 9 or whatever it was when it came out. And I remember a lot of... Um... No, no... 
I was what, the original? Six. I was six when Homeland came out. And um, uh, yeah, the, all, all of school was like, they'd have like, it's very important you don't recreate these things in films. It's very funny, but if you hit me in the face with a pain can, I'll good. fucking skin you. Because <laughs> <laughs> pain cans will kill people. Like, good, uh, good luck trying to fucking recreate some of those things, mind you. <laughs> Although tarring your stairs and putting nails in it's pretty... Oh, yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so, Some of it does make me wince just thinking about it. I know, I know. But that's kind of the... But, but then is, he, yeah. some of it is really fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal, but really fucking funny. <laughs> but again, I, I would always wager, which is the same argument that I did at the time, which was we have Tom and Jerry on it all, yeah. all day. And it really does it evoke that. Yeah. yeah. It also gave birth to that amazing YouTube video, which is uh, Joe Pesci with his hat burning, just going, because ah! it repeats it whilst the theme from The Long Good Friday plays On that note, Shall we get some team names? Let's do it. Some elevator pitches, other good stuff like that. Over to the former Street Sharks. Let's kick off with uh, you boys. It's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be very interesting how we do this. We need to do our uh, title and elevator pitch before our team name. Oh, so it makes sense. Otherwise, it's not gonna make sense. Okay, go ahead. The title is Home Alone Three: London Calling. Mm. It's a Eurovision. <laughs> yeah. Okay, elevator pitch. Set shortly after a McAllister family Christmas abroad in London, the same curse of leaving a child behind repeats itself again, only this time help isn't coming. Our team name this week is Finn Whittington. For American listeners, Dick Whittington is the fabled first mayor of London. (laughs) (laughs) That was the most Stockton laugh I've ever heard in my life. You should have seen the fa- the Facebook chat where we came up with this, and we were just, we were throwing some, and then it just and then Matt suggested Finn Whittington. I was just like, yeah, I'd um, I'd like to point out, um, like, good lord, I, I don't even have anything to point, like to point out, I think, but I can't. I I I'm amazed that you two aren't disgusted with yourself. <laughs> I mean, basically, the hashtags keep coming in. We're the fight- likes keep yeah, rolling in. Sorry, we're, we're, we're fighting just... for a draw this season. We've got to do every underhand dirty trick we have. I'm sure that that's definitely one over Jack there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> Would you like you us can to see do creasing up in the yeah, corner? Do you want our cast and crew? Would you like to see our cast and crew? Sure, hit me with some cast and crew. So. Uh, can I ask beforehand, what year is yours? Maybe? Well, this is what we're just about to reveal. Oh. So, um, the release year is 1995, which is three years after Home Alone. Our director is Stephen Herrick, who did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and The Mighty Ducks, and then went on to do 101 Dalmatians. Mm. And as a kind of little thing, this is kind of just as a behind-the-scenes thing of when me and Matt were coming up with some of the ideas for this, mm-hmm. um, what we basically did was essentially came up with that and thought, hmm, 101 Dalmatians, that kind of has a similar feel to what we're going for with this. So we've p- pinched a lot of the kind of crew and a bit of the cast from that film we did. as well. And that's kind of a good style model for what we kind of feel like. Less Disney, obviously, and the rest of it, but that kind of early it's 90s... It's very evocative of a... It feels like a Home Alone sequel, weirdly enough. Yeah. In a it, weird way. That kind of early 90s, kind of not quite Richard Curtis view of London, very American view of, of London with slapstick and, and yeah. kind of family friendly. Less Sky Ritchie. Yeah. Less... More lies. Yeah. Dick Van Dyke. Mary Pop- <laughs> More Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins. So the returning cast is McAllister family from the previous film. The new cast is Jodie Richardson, who plays Eva Smythe, uh, and she had been in Loch Ness and then goes on to be in Event Horizon and The Patriot. Mm. We have none other than uh, Hugh Laurie, 
who plays Gary, and he was, of course, in Sense and Sensibility, and then went on to be in Spice World and Stuart Little. Most people will know him as House. I was going to yeah, say, most people know him your as choices House. were Spice World well, and Stuart Little. It was contemporary. T- it, well, it's, it's, it's what his, it, of the period, and also film rather than yeah. TV. Yeah. So, yeah. Mark Williams as Dave, and of course he was in... Although the, he can't do anything but TV, really. Yeah. Until for later. Yeah, who was in The Fast Show, uh, and Shakespeare in Love, and also... Oh, Harry Mark Potter Williams. Series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big up for Mr. Williams. <laughs> I'm so glad we finally. I'm so glad we finally got time. to do this. It's uh-huh. about time. We got my mate Bob Hoskins hey. as, as, uh, as Lenny. Uh, he was, of course, in Hook and the classic Super Mario Brothers, and went on to be in Nixon, played by Tom Martin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This last bit of casting is probably going to yeah. be quite controversial. Yeah, yeah. So we've also got Henry Cavill. Oh, as Dom. And he was in, at this point, The Count of Monte Cristo, and of course went on to be Superman in The Man of Steel. Hashtag not my Superman. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely not my Superman. No. He'd be a fine Superman if it wasn't for everything else transpiring. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't it wasn't know if he would. He doesn't like Superman. I've never seen him be good in anything, so there you go. Carry on. I'm told he's good in the Tudors, but then again, I didn't watch that. Mm, no. so, anyway, moving on. Our DOP is Adrian Biddle whom, among other things, he lensed uh, Aliens and Thelma and Louise, and he went on to do uh, Judge Dredd and The World Is Not Enough, and I think I'm right in saying he was also on 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians, yes. As well. <laughs> and our composer is uh, Michael Kamen, who did The Three Musketeers and Die Hard with a Vengeance, and then went on to do Event. And S&M album with Metallica. <laughs> and did the orchestral pieces on uh, the Black he, Album yeah, as well. Before he, just before he died. There you go. So that's that's our kind of look at the kind of look and feel and cast and crew for our uh, our version of Home Alone. Thank you, Finn Whittington. Over to you, Plowman and Ashen. So our team name is definitely not fucking Finn Whittington. Surprise, oh, surprise. That is our team name. <laughs> definitely not fucking Finn Whittington. <laughs> <laughs> our team name is We Need to Forget About Kevin. Hey, <laughs> that's hilarious. Nice. Title, themes, elevator pitch. And cast and all that kind of stuff from you, please, sirs. Title, Home Alone 3, original. Year of release is 2010. Oh, wow. Fucking hell. And returning... Oh, I'll give you our synopsis first. Katie and Jesse McAllister are left home alone when their mom and dad go on holiday. But when burglars invade the house, they will need to defend the property and are forced to recruit an estranged family member. Hmm... I wonder who that strange family member could be. Right, so, right out the bat, returning cast, Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin. Mm, hey. Yeah, that, that's um, right. Of course. And Buzz McAllister, played by Devin Rattray. Jesus. Um, new cast, Katie McAllister, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Oh, yep. Okay, good call. Yeah. Jesse McAllister, played by Ty Simpkins. Oh, who yeah, yeah. He's the kid from Iron Man 3 yeah. and mm-hmm. from oh, Jurassic yeah. World. And new villains. Nick, played by Jason Siegel, and Seth, played by James Franco. Interesting. Yeah, oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Our director is Joe Dante. Oh, because... I think I like Judd Apatow or some shit. Mm. No, I, Joe Dante is somebody who we thought really gets doing something that pushes the envelope for what is a children a film for children while still making it suitable yeah. for children. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree and, with that. Yeah. yeah, good call. And we kind of went... Joe Dante is somebody who gets this kind of material. I think perhaps even better than uh, Chris Columbus does. Yeah. So um, we thought that would be really fun to bring him in. Mm-hmm. What was he yeah, doing at that kind of time? He's. I don't think yeah, he's, he's doing, doing a lot of that. Point, no. Which is um, 
a shame. He should be doing more because Joe Dante's a great. I actor. agree with that entirely. Yeah. Because we have John Williams uh, coming back to do music. Cinematography by John C. Hora, who is a regular collaborator with. Uh, Joe Dante, he did The Howling, he did Gremlins, he did Gremlins 2. He also did Twilight Zone, a movie, uh, some of the stuff from Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, Honey, I Blow Up the Kid, and he works on Air Indiana, the TV show. I fucking so love Air Indiana. He's got a pedigree for doing this kind yeah. of thing. And I think aesthetically, again, working with Joe Dante to create something that's subversive family scary stuff, yeah. enough, but not so much that it's uh, mm. pushing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And of course, our bandit traps are based on failed home security products <laughs> designed by Peter Brampton. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> how, could and, they, uh, how could they not be? And, and we should be sickened with ourselves, apparently. Yeah, yeah exactly. But no, we just laugh. God forbid one of you guys runs the joke into the ground. Um, our themes are growing up, coming of age, and the importance of becoming self reliant, the reunion of family. Letting go of past traumas and Rube Goldberg machines can solve most of life's problems. <laughs> Heath Robinson machines. We're not American. <laughs> There's been some debate in the uh, uh, Fram camp. Yeah, in the Fram camp. <laughs> That's something that I wish we'd come Fram up with camp. earlier. The Fram camp. Yeah, there has been some debate in the. Fram it's camp Heath Robinson. It's Heath Robinson. It's always Heath Robinson. Over to you, Finn Whittington, with your pitch, please, sirs. So, uh, our synopsis for Home Alone 3, London Calling, starts now. Our story opens with several establishing shots of a busy post-Christmas London. It's the 26th of December, and the British public are indulging in the madness of the Boxing Day sales. This is detailed in a Harrods advert broadcast on the TV, watched religiously by the McAllister family. Their annual family holiday has come to an end, and surprisingly without incident. Seemingly bored of Britain, with its lack of snow and terrible food, the Chicago natives are ready to head home. Frank encourages his brother to take one last trip to a pub and the adults leave, telling the kids to get to bed early so they don't miss the afternoon flight. With the parents gone, the kids discuss what Boxing Day is. Kevin is teased by Buzz that Boxing Day is when ungrateful kids are boxed up in coffins and thrown into the River Thames. Kevin, older and hardened by his experience, tells his older brother to beat it and fails to get the rise that Buzz is after. Along with Rod, Buzz then says the exact same thing to Fuller before going the extra mile and picking Fuller up, taking him to a vacant room across the hall and throwing him in a trunk at the end of the bed before stacking things on top of it and calling him a bedwetting, no-girlfriend-having gimboid. The room door slams behind them and Fuller is left alone, rattling in the box. In the middle of the night, an alarm wakes the entire household before several protests cause the shrieking alarm to be permanently silenced. Several hours later, a phone rings. Peter McAllister blearily answers and speaks with the hotel concierge, who details that the room checkout time is fast approaching. Peter says that can't be the case, then realises his alarm was set for a different time zone and their flight is only hours away. The expansive hotel room is in chaos as the combined McAllister relatives bustle about, packing and readying themselves for the long flight home. The family are then seen bolting around the underground, only for the doors to slide closed with Kevin on the other side of the door. Kate presses herself up against the door and shouts, Kevin, and I'm not going to do it in that sort of, Kevin! Even though I just did it. <laughs> so, <laughs> make of that what you will, as the train pulls away into the dark tunnel. Getting off at the next station, Kate informs her family that this will never happen again. Kevin will never be abandoned either at home or abroad. As she says this, another train pulls up and Kevin calmly steps off with his luggage in tow. He cockily reminds his family that he survived New York, London is a walk in the park. Finally, reaching the airport, everyone takes their seats and settles into the flight. Back in the London hotel, a maid deactivates a hoover and listens to a faint snoring sound coming from a trunk at the, the foot of the four-poster bed. 
Removing the item stacked on top of it, Fuller jolts awake and both he and the maid scream at each other in shock. He then apologises and tumbles out and across the hallway, only to see another maid cleaning the empty room. Panicking, Fuller runs downstairs, out of the hotel and into the street. Realising he is without clothes, money or a passport, he starts to pace back and forth before finally calming himself down, stating that when Kevin went missing, everyone was in a state of panic, so all he has to do is wait. We then see the McAllisters on the flight, and everyone is busy with their own affairs, reading, watching the in-flight movie, etc. Frank is banging on the toilet door, having an argument with a British lady currently occupying the bathroom for what he deems is a suspiciously long amount of time. As evening approaches, Fuller gets hungry and walks around London looking into the restaurants, sighing at the smells from the street food vendors. As he is drawn over by the smell of roasting nuts, Fuller watches a teenage boy release a pigeon, which distracts the vendor... <laughs> After roasting nuts. Yeah. Release a pigeon. <laughs> oh, yes. It sounded so much like a Hey, we're, this is a comedy pit. It's gonna have release to the minutes. pigeon. Release that pigeon after. It's release all, the pigeon. It's all rhyming. Oh, I'm roasting my nuts. I'm hoping that a copper comes up to me and goes, "You cannot release your pigeon in public, son." Illu illu What do you think you're doing here, then? You've not been able to unleash your pigeon in public since the time of Queen Vic. I'll have you know. A voice pigeon's been in his undershorts. Let's try that again. Let's try that again, gentlemen. As he is drawn over by the smell of roasting nuts, Fuller watches a teenage boy release a pigeon which distracts the vendor long enough to pinch a few bags of the roasted nuts. Running over, Fuller catches up to the teenager and asks for one of the bags of nuts. The teenager threatens to deck the kid if he doesn't leave, but Fuller, driven to stubbornness by hunger, stands his ground and threatens to turn the teenager in if he doesn't share. Amused, the older kid laughs and hands Fuller one of the bags before introducing himself as Dom. Over the warm snack, Fuller details his predicament, to which Dom sizes up the American and explains he knows the US ambassador and can help Fuller get home. Fuller accompanies Dom to a lavish but seemingly empty house, and they head around to the back. Dom states that he had a spare key and can get in whenever he wants, but he's lost it, convincing Fuller to hop over the wall, through an unlocked window, and let him in the front. Fuller frowns but complies. Once he has been let in, Dom exposits that the ambassador has a son, so there should be clothes, but they are away on international business. Fuller asks for the truth, and Dom levels with him, saying he only knows about the ambassador because of a criminal friend of his, and sleeps rough, but this is better than the alternative. And it's only temporary. Fuller, used to following older siblings, accepts the gesture and the risk. The next morning, Dom has made breakfast for Fuller as an apology for lying to him. He openly admits he has no idea how to get him back to America, but that he can show him where the US Embassy is. Fuller takes the directions, but doesn't feel an urgent need to go back to his deep, deadbeat family, and asks Dom to show him around London, something which his family failed to do. We're then treated to an extensive montage of London tourist stuff. Hamleys, black cabs around Westminster, the change of the guards, Trafalgar Square, taking a double-decker bus across Tower Bridge, etc, etc, etc. Late that night, Dom explains he's going to pinch some food from the market and that he'll be right back. Fuller sits himself in front of the television and starts to watch Angels with Filthy Souls 3, which is the continuation of Johnny's gangster life, wherein a British detective from Scotland Yard is encroaching on his patch, but the detective shoots Johnny, saying, No American escapes the long arm of the law. At that moment... Two men pull a sack down over Fuller's head and smuggle him out of the house. Walking back with a bag of pilfered goods, Dom spies two criminals shoving a squirming bag in the back of a van and driving off. Quickly checking the house, Dom discovers that Fuller has been kidnapped. In the back of the van, Fuller listens to the criminals, Gary and Dave, talk about ransoming the ambassador's son. His initial fears are alleviated somewhat as their conversation reveals how bumbling and inept they clearly are. Back in Chicago, the McAllister family arrive at Peter's home and complain loudly about jet lag and their shared New Year's plans. 
Everyone is oblivious to Fuller's absence to the degree that Frank walks in moaning about why he had to carry Fuller's bag and shouts for his son before tossing the duffel bag to one side. Pulling into an abandoned East End warehouse, Gary and Dave pull Fuller out of the sack and sit him in a chair. They goad him about his parents' wealth and how it will soon be theirs. Fuller explains he's not the kid they're after, but they don't believe him. Fuller subtly scans the room for an exit, and after a fair bit of back and forth, the criminals see a photograph of the ambassador's son and realise that Fuller is nothing like the child in question. Stepping to one side, Gary and Dave discuss that they can't let the kid go as he's seen their faces and decide they have to take care of him. At this point, they turn around and realise their captor, who they never actually tied up, has escaped. Cue a highly entertaining and visually pleasing slapstick-filled chase through the east end of London. Apples and pears! Yeah, 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 yeah. My wife has a cockney. She's probably like in the house saying, fuck off. Fuller eventually gives the two criminals a slip and, unsure where he is, sleeps in a pile of cardboard inside a loosely sealed stall. The next morning, Fuller is rudely awoken by the market stores opening up. Through an amusing interaction rife with cockney rhyming slang, apples and pear stairs, Fuller is given direction to the US Embassy but politely rejects a breakfast of jelly deals. I mean, he's foolish, isn't he, to do that? <laughs> Fuller directs it. Fuller d- Editorial by Tom Martin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bloody lovely, Jilly Deals. Uh, Fuller treks through the early morning city commute and finally arrives at the embassy, but has difficulty getting past the guards without a passport, insisting he's a US citizen and reciting trivial facts about his country, which failed to impress the security team. Whilst trying to gain access, Fuller overhears Eva Smythe, the ambassador's assistant, explain that the ambassador's house was broken into, and because of the sensitive documents inside, it's a matter of national security. Fuller, thinking they are talking about him rather than Dave and Gary, gets nervous and backs away. We then cut to Gary and Dave driving around in their beaten-up van. We learn they've been driving around all night looking for Fuller, discussing what to do with him and decide that someone will pay his ransom, even if they're not an ambassador. Dave comically describes Fuller to Gary, who commends him on his memory before Dave points out the window and says he must look a lot like that child. Realising it's Fuller, they get out of the car and chase him through the street. Eventually, Fuller slips into Harrods and haphazardly navigates the department store clientele. Screaming, don't run! A security guard gives chase. Sliding under a table, Gary and Dave crash into a crystal swan and the guard grabs the criminals, explaining they just destroyed a £500,000 piece and that they can talk to the police. That afternoon, Fuller reunites with Dom and the two catch up. Fuller is convinced the criminals will keep coming after him and asks if Don knows anyone who could help out. Dom says he'll have to do some research. Loosely describing where the criminals' hideout was, Dom says he knows the place. Fuller says he knows what to do, saying it's kind of a McAllister tradition. Dom, unsure of what that means, shrugs and says he'll get help. Fuller turns up at the warehouse and looks around. From the various items littered around, he sets up various traps for the unsuspecting criminals. Hearing the van pull up outside, Fuller gets into position and waits for Gary and Dave to try and enter their once secure hideout. In true Home Alone fashion, a series of House of Horrors pratfalls and antics take place, subjecting the criminals to um, to torturous treatment that would kill normal men, but somehow they merely experience cartoon-style soot-covered faces and frazzled hair, etc. Spying Fuller from a key position in the warehouse, Gary shouts up to him, stating all the horrible things that they will do to him, specifically mailing him back to his family piece by piece for the ransom. Fuller makes a passionate speech that a ransom would be pointless that says his family suck and they most likely don't even know he's missing. Before the thugs can set upon the child, another car pulls up outside and a suited man steps over the carnage and debris of the release traps. He demands to know what's going on. Dave Cockerley asks who he is, to which the man responds, Lenny Braithwaite. This prompts a slew of aliases from Gary and Dave. Lenny the Ruthless, the Braithwaite Butcher, the Cockney Prince of Crime, etc, etc, etc. He smiles and says, the very same. And states he's got a tip-off that a pair of criminals were making trouble in the area he controls, rocking the boat and getting the CIA and MI5 involved where he doesn't want them snooping around. 
Before Dave and Gary can offer an explanation, the police raid the warehouse and arrest everyone. The lead detective explains that they've been trailing Braithwaite and this finally links him to a kidnapping which they can take him down for. In the police station, Fuller is sitting alone in a questioning room. Being a US citizen, Fuller is met by the ambassador's assistant and he confesses everything. Horrified, Eva says she'll get him home. He explains he doesn't have a passport or any form of ID. She says she'll figure something out. As he's escorted out of the police station, Fuller sees Dom being lightly interrogated, who winks at him to let him know he'll be alright. New Year's Eve and a cab pulls up outside the McAllister residence, knocking down the statue out of the front. The doorbell rings and Buzz answers the door. Seeing Eva on his doorstep, he, and seemingly every male family member, falls over himself to offer assistance. Frank pushes to the front of the group and introduces himself, asking how he can help the young lady. Fuller steps out from behind Eva. She explains that this young man has been stranded abroad for a week and seemingly no effort has been made to recover him. Frank then makes an excessive fuss saying, excessive fuss saying they've been looking all over him and that they're glad that he's safe. Not buying it, Eva and Fuller make a speech about valuing those nearest and dearest to you. Eva forcefully hands a newspaper to Frank before leaning down and kissing Fuller goodbye, saying if he ever needs a job when he's older, London could use someone who knows how the streets operate. The family are in shock. As Fuller steps inside and Eva leaves, normality quickly resumes over the household. Sensing nothing has actually changed, Fuller runs to his room. Kevin knocks on the door and sits next to his cousin on the bed. Fuller says Aunt Kate did everything in her power to get Kevin back, but that no one cared Fuller was gone. Kevin pulls out a notepad he kept which charts a series of flights that left the day they returned home. Kevin says he respects what Fuller must have gone through to get back, but at least one family member was doing what he could to find him. The cousins muse about how awful their family is, and this will not be a running family tradition. From downstairs, Frank shouts up about why Fuller's face is on the front page of a British newspaper. Fuck, that's darker than my Matrix one. <laughs> Jesus, the children nobody cared about. Yep. Home Alone Films. Well, that was kind of how we thought we'd deal with it, is just... <laughs> run with it because uh, also Kieran Culkin's a better actor yeah that was our theory but anyway we'll talk about that later yes over to you we need to forget about Kevin okay <laughs> we open on a family home in suburban Chicago a subtitle informs us that it is August inside the house a mother and father are frantically going through a checklist before travelling meanwhile their two children Katie age 13 and Jesse age 9 are engrossed in screens Katie on an iPad, Jesse playing an Xbox, apparently oblivious to their parents' frantic behaviour. Through the parents' conversation, we learn that they are travelling to a wedding out of state and that this is the first time they've ever left their children home alone. Having made sure that everything is packed, that they have the relevant tickets and travelling info, the mother, Samantha, tells Katie that they are ready to go. She runs through an enormous safety checklist, tells her that there are enough frozen meals in the freezer for a week even though they're only gone for two days, and that there is money on the kitchen counter if they want to order takeout. Samantha is obviously very worried about leaving the children alone for such a long period of time, but Katie does not share her concern. In fact, she is completely blasé about the situation, and more bothered that her mom is distracting her from a riveting Facebook message thread. She quickly becomes agitated, however, when her iPad apparently stops working. None of her messages are sending. Samantha asks the father, Buzz, to go and check on the router. It doesn't seem to be working either. Buzz then tries to call their internet service provider on his cell phone, but the call won't connect. He drives the landline phone to discover that it, too, is not working. We cut to an hour later. Buzz is trying in vain to reconnect the various devices when there is a knock at the door. It's a workman informing the family that the phone lines were accidentally cut during routine maintenance and that the entire area is now without phone or internet connectivity. Buzz asks him how long it will take to resolve the situation, at the behest of two angry millennials whose entire lives have apparently come to a halt with the loss of an internet connection. 
The workman says that they're doing everything they can to resolve the situation, but that it'll probably take at least 48 hours. Buzz and Samantha debate what to do. They're anxious about going on the trip, as the kids won't be able to contact them if anything goes wrong. Buzz suggests asking a neighbour to check in on them, but Samantha counters that the neighbours are all away. It's the last week of the school holidays, meaning that most families are on vacation. What about Kevin? Buzz suggests, but his idea is met with instant protest from Katie, whose ears have pricked up at the mention of the name. Ah, oh, please, Dad, not Uncle Kevin. He's such a weirdo. Buzz asked... <laughs> Appropriately cast, appropriately well, aged, Macaulay cast. Culkin. Yeah. Macaulay Culkin is weird. <laughs> PTSD suffering Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Buzz tells Katie that that's no way to talk about family. Under her breath, Samantha says to Buzz that Katie has a point. Samantha and Buzz decide that Buzz will go over to Uncle Kevin's house, he lives a couple of blocks away, and ask him to check in on the kids while they're away. Katie and Jesse aren't happy with the situation, but can see that it's better than having Kevin come and stay with them. Buzz arrives at Kevin's home. The windows are blacked out and kitted out with security bars. It doesn't exactly look inviting. He knocks on the door. Inside, we see a shot of Kevin from behind, watching the front entrance from a console with multiple screens. It looks like he has security cameras set up covering every angle of his front porch and his entire house for that matter. We cut back to Buzz and hear a commotion from inside as Kevin makes his way to the entrance. We hear the sound of multiple security locks being undone before the door finally opens, and Buzz comes face to face with his brother. It's recognisably Kevin, but he looks dishevelled and unhinged compared to the last time we saw him. Kevin cheerily greets his brother and leads him into the living room. On the way, he nonchalantly tells Buzz to watch out for the myriad booby traps that litter the house, as if insane defence systems like these are the norm in any home. (laughs) Kevin has to disable some of the more complex contraptions before letting him through. Kevin's living room is more like an army barracks. Canned food and survival supplies line shelves. It seems he is a doomsday prepper. Buzz explains the situation with the phone lines and the trip to Kevin. Kevin interjects and says that he'd be happy to look after the kids while they're away, that he's got just the gear to fend off any looters that might come calling. Buzz is taken aback by Kevin's over-the-top response, but thanks him and says that won't be necessary. He tells Kevin that all he wants him to do is check on the kids a couple of times while he and Samantha are away. Kevin agrees, and also gives Buzz a walkie-talkie. He tells him that the kids can reach him with it if they need anything. Back at home, Samantha and Buzz say their goodbyes to the kids and leave. Almost as soon as they have gone, the walkie-talkie sounds. Kevin is checking in. In montage, we see him calling the kids with the walkie-talkie a lot, to which they become increasingly exasperated. Katie finally snaps, telling Uncle Kevin that they don't need him checking up on them every five minutes, that if they need him, they'll call him, that he's a paranoid crazy man, and that no one is going to invade their home. On cue, we cut to a pest control van parked nearby to the McAllister household. Inside, two crooks, Seth and Nick, are scouring the area. They've been casing the neighbourhood for a couple of weeks, planning a big score. Now, with the phones down and most of the families on holiday, the two career criminals are ready to make a move. Seth asks how exactly they're going to do it, to which Nick responds, they'll follow the plan that Uncle Harry gave them. Later that evening in the McAllister house, Jesse says he thinks Katie was being mean to Uncle Kevin and that he was only worrying about them. Katie responds by reiterating that Uncle Kevin is a weirdo. Jesse says he doesn't get why Uncle Kevin is so weird and Katie tells him the story of what happened to Kevin in his youth, the incidents in Chicago and New York. Meanwhile, Seth and Nick have gone through the first couple of houses in the neighbourhood, amassing a considerable haul of jewellery and electronics goods. The McAllister household is next on their list. 
The two attempt to break in, but Katie and Jesse hear the sound of the men smashing a window and go to investigate. Upon seeing the two men attempting to break in, the kids start to scream. Seth and Nick are similarly startled, having assumed the house to be empty, and do a runner. Katie gets on the walkie-talkie to Uncle Kevin, who we find alone in his house, watching angels with fisting face... Oops. (laughs) Freudian slip. That was the rudest thing I could think of off the top of my head. Watching angels releasing their pigeons on the (laughs) streets of London. Oh, no. Roasting their nuts on the fire. Katie gets on the walkie-talkie to Uncle Kevin, who we find alone in his house, watching Angels with Filthy Souls, the fictional gangster film from the original Home Alone, on television. Uncle Kevin answers and Katie explains to him about the failed burglary attempt. Kevin is initially smug, saying that Katie was wrong to dismiss him as a crazy person, but as her voice becomes more desperate, he agrees to come over. We see a montage of him packing his bag with supplies and making his way out the front door. Kevin arrives, and Katie says that they need to get out of the house and report the incident to the police. Kevin, however, disagrees, saying that the burglars will simply target the house while they are out, and starts rigging up a number of sophisticated booby traps. Katie and Jesse reluctantly help him. Outside, Seth and Nick are still shaken by finding someone in the house, but looking at the driveway and seeing the car is gone, they reason that the parents must have gone and left the kids home alone. They check their profile of the family and realise how old the kids are. Nick says that two snot-nosed preteens shouldn't give them much trouble, and they decide to hit the house again. Upon breaking in, however, they fall victim to the myriad ingenious traps that Kevin, Katie and Jesse have laid, most of which are variations on the ones used in the first two Home Alone movies. Seth and Nick are suitably battered and bruised by this and flee from the house in terror. Cleaning up the mess afterwards, Katie thanks Uncle Kevin for his help. She still thinks he's a weirdo, but is grateful that his weirdo home defence knowledge came in handy on this occasion. As the pair talk, Kevin says that he thinks Katie and Jesse are too mollycoddled by Buzz and Samantha, and that learning to fend for yourself is part of growing up. However, as he begins to ramble on, the level of his paranoia becomes apparent. He's clearly been damaged by the experiences of the first two films. Katie tells him that, while she's beginning to understand why Kevin is the way he is, he needs to find a way to let it go. The world isn't usually a terrible place, even if this occasion seems to suggest otherwise, and it would be nice to have Uncle Kevin be a normal uncle. Kevin concedes that maybe she's right, but is distracted when he realises that he is missing a part for another booby trap. He tells her that he's returning to his house to get it, and they'll be back as soon as he can. Outside, Seth and Nick have brought in reinforcements. Their uncle Harry, played by Joe Pesci, and his old partner in crime, Marv, played by Daniel Stern. From the van, they see Kevin leave the house. I knew it, Marv says. Kevin McAllister, I'd recognise that brat anywhere. Harry and Marv say that they'll take care of Kevin. He's a tricky son of a bitch, but they've tangled with him on a couple of occasions, and they're confident they can deal with him. Harry and Marv break into Kevin's house. They're smart enough to avoid the CCTV, and have become savvy enough to Kevin's tricks over the years to evade his myriad booby traps. They manage to trap Kevin in his living room stronghold. They knock him out, tie him up, and duct tape him to a chair. Katie hails Kevin on the walkie-talkie and asks him where he is. Harry answers, telling her that they've got Kevin and that they're coming to burgle her house. Harry tells Katie that he's feeling charitable and that Kevin getting mixed up in this had nothing to do with them. He says that he's giving her and Jesse an hour to get out of the house, but that if they're not gone by the time he, Marv, Seth and Nick get there, they'll be hell to pay. Jesse says that he and Katie should leave and go to the police, but Katie says that the damage will be done by the time they get there. Seth, Nick, Harry and Marv will have robbed their house and they'll have won. She says that her and Jesse need to do what Uncle Kevin would have done, to defend their home. 
She goes to the bag that Uncle Kevin left behind and finds tools and schematics for elaborate traps. In a montage, her and Jesse tool up and set about setting up Uncle Kevin's myriad Rube Goldberg-esque devices, as well as improvising their own 21st century contraptions that make use of iPads, etc. Seth, Nick, Marv and Harry enter the house. Hapless as ever, Seth and Nick fall prey to Katie and Jesse's tricks, with Tom and Jerry-esque slapstick injuries ensuing. Harry and Marv are savvier to Kevin's old-school traps, but trip up, often quite literally, when it comes to the newer, tech-heavy contraptions designed by Katie and Jesse. However, the criminal duo perseveres. It looks like they've got Katie and Jesse cornered. The pair debates how to get their revenge on Katie and Jesse when a blow to the head knocks them out cold. Behind them stands Uncle Kevin, freed from his restraints, though still gagged and covered in duct tape. Along with Uncle Kevin, Katie and Jesse tie up the four bandits. Katie's phone buzzes and she realises that the lines have been restored, so they call the police who take Seth, Nick, Marv and Harry into custody. Kevin, Katie and Jesse set about fixing up the house before Buzz and Samantha come back. Katie thanks Uncle Kevin, saying they could never have saved the day without him. Kevin counters that it was Katie and Jesse's ingenuity and resilience that saved the day, and he'd just given them the tools to use those skills themselves. Kevin then suggests that maybe he, Katie and Jesse could go to an amusement park next week, saying that he'd like to have a go at being normal Uncle Kevin. Excellent pictures, gentlemen. Very different. Again, you've got the time disparity there as well, which I think is interesting. Not quite 30 years, but... <laughs> Same thing, those guys went new, we went contemporary slash old. <laughs> as in contemporary to the wood time the film yeah. was made. Contemporary slash old. <laughs> I knew what you meant, Tom. I knew. So coming over to... Ben Whittington first. Yes, Jack, how can we help you? I think it was pretty kind of dark, and I guess that's sort of the point of yours, mm-hmm. that sure. the McAllisters just didn't do anything and didn't give really a shit. fuck about Fuller. The and poor really Fuller is just like, he's now got to deal when with Frank some, deal with some dark film, shit. Because the pizza is in danger. He crushes his own son's face with a chair <laughs> and does not notice or apologise yeah. ever. Frank is Frank McAllister is a monster. And that it? is basically what we were going off of when we thought about it. it. was, okay, we could have the same thing happen to Macaulay Culkin again. We think, like the idea of the plausibility, the, idea mm. of the family noticing, there's no way it can happen to Kevin again because he becomes this precious item. Like, oh no, I can't let Kevin yeah. out my sight. I think if you get, yeah, if you get to two, I think it would be... And also, as as we kind of hinted at in the opening, he would become savvy enough to not allow as as he's aged a little bit, or uh, becomes in PTSD, PTSD crazy, yeah, Uncle Kevin. Um, <laughs> but like he's savvy enough, and also the the parents are kind of careful enough now. But as we've established, like, yeah, Fuller's dad is just an asshole. Like, he I would also put to you that in any terrible. scene in in Home Alone one or two, when everyone's leaving in you know either the big hotel room in New York or something like, that, or they're back in the house and they're all bundled in after the you know the mum's done what she can to get across the country. If one of those kids was missing. Would you have noticed? As in you, the audience. And I know that sounds awful, but that's kind of how I really think about. I think about. I think about the McAllister family. I think they 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 count a fucking neighbour as one of their own. It's like, yeah, that's close enough. That is a child in a hat. <laughs> they are awful human beings. But just to jump in on that though, my, my feeling with Frank is that you fucking love Frank. Well, Frank, I don't love Frank. I think he's a, he's a jerk. Alec is a Frank apologist. But in the <laughs> a Frankophile. <in> <laughs> In the uh, first film, or, or the second film for that matter, you can get away with him being a really one-dimensional character that's played entirely for laughs. I think it becomes a bit different in the second film, in this third film, because there is this element of implausibility 
all the way through it. And as Jack says, something very dark about this idea that this guy's basically a neglectful, uh, abusive parent who doesn't realize that his own child is missing for a week. And surely somebody would have, and surely the other kids would have known because they put him in a fucking box. It's, um, there is, I don't know. To me, I like I loved it all the way through, and then that just kind of stretched plausibility. I think there was some foreshadowing, though, because if you care about a child, you do not call it fuller. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fact. That's a your point. I mean, it kind of goes back partially to what we were saying at the beginning, which is this whole series is an exercise in suspension of disbelief mm, at yeah. various levels. Um, but may- I think this is a different kind of suspension of disbelief. I think that's my... That's my thing. There's Tom and Jerry, and then there's like he's an abusive father. Well, this we were kind of going for it shit. to a certain extent with something darker. With yeah, something we, we, we yeah, to, we, we wanted tell. to install yeah. a we wanted to install a meaningful arc to a third film, which literally, let's face it, if you if you're doing a Home Alone film and it's about kids fighting off burglars again, which all of ours arguably are in some way, shape, or form, if you're going to do it as a sequel closer to the time as we did, so for argument's sake, you get to the point where you think, well, first of all. Is it physically possible for people to want to act or criminals to attack these people? Then you get the idea of is it ever possible? Okay, put it another way: Is it ever possible that that the same thing happened to Kevin again in the second film? And if you believe it can happen twice, then it can happen as many times as you want. And also, yeah, as I say, in the early nineties, kids. No, I mean, there's there's unaccompanied minors as a film for Christ's sake about kids running around an airport it's awful God, as a fucking true, film isn't it that is the yeah. title unaccompanied yeah, yeah, yeah. minors and again in the 90s you would get away with that quite well and no one I think would end up saying God, these parents are awful. Because no one said about the first two Home Alone films, I think. But I think it's different in the first two Home Alone films because his mum is actively trying to get him back. They've made this huge mistake. But then she just basically does absolutely everything she can to get there and goes to ridiculous lengths to, you know, hitching a ride with John Candy across country and everything else. She then, from the moment that they realise Kevin is missing, she is like, my sole purpose in life is to be reunited with Kevin I know you said about the one else. dimensional thing Frank's first line is I once left a you know was it glasses on holiday somewhere like and I know it's like you know okay put it this way I can't I can't arguably justify the performance until you see it and that's never going to happen yeah. kind of thing but ultimately speaking Isn't it? oh, oh. Uh, well no if you're listening Hollywood <laughs> so do we have and an time travelers <laughs> No, I think I think it's something does something different because it, 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 there's you need to be able to do something different with this family. You need to be able to do something where you say something meaningful, which is don't fucking ignore your children. Because arguably speaking, in Home Alone one and two, everything can be resolved very quickly with you know the police. In the first one, they do make a lot of concessions and, and statements about certain things, and that's fine. And the second one, I mean, I think it's always been pointed out now that Tim Curry is the bad guy in Home Alone two. But Tim Curry's doing his fucking job. Tim Curry is questioning a child with a credit card. And, yeah, I, I've no... Basically, I don't agree with you, Alec, because I, I'm, I'm really, really hard to say, fuck off, no, because it's really difficult. But, effectively, no, I, I genuinely think you can go darker and you can have these people being awful, awful human beings. And the only one who understands is Kevin, because he's been through it. That's why we have that little, obviously, the thing in the end. Because also, I think we established at the end that Aunt Kate has been, so she's noticed and has been trying. Yeah, Kate else. and Kevin imply that they yeah, have. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That those guys, because they've know what it's like, but that they've essentially failed to uh, convince the others because they're just assholes, giant, giant assholes who yeah. don't really care. Um, but there we go. That was a- so the the Aunt Kate and Kevin uh, were trying to convince Frank and Co mm-hmm. that they should 
yeah. look at yeah. try and get their child stuck care in London. That their son is stuck in a foreign. Well, country. no, because it was always with the dismissive, like, "Yeah, hey, he's fine. He's somewhere else. He's over his friend's house. Whatever." It is. That kind of thing. We we didn't want to show that because we wanted to confirm Fuller's suspicions of no one cares. I, I have to do this myself. I have to be. Re-. I mean, he's got a cousin who survived two awful situations, and then he finds himself in the same boat. He has to grow up very quickly and painfully, as this everyone in his fucking family does, apparently. Yeah, so he went down that. Again, are you talking about Macaulay Culkin or... (laughs) The Culkin family. Mm -hmm. And then Rory Culkin in Signs. Frank is history's greatest monster. I I genuinely think Frank is is an abysmal human being as a character. He really is, isn't he? He certainly is portrayed as such. Speaking of the super dark tone, I, I know I always bring up this question, but... Go ahead. How do you think that shift in tone would play with the audience and and I think is that is that I, I, I a would thing that would put off kids sim- and things like that no no no, like, no one sentence one sentence we got Stephen Herrick and all the people involved with 101 Dalmatians because if you can watch a film go <laughs> skinning dogs, dogs. yeah this then you exactly are fine with a <laughs> child like, in London yeah. ha 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 they're gonna skin all those dogs is is basically the plot to 101 Dalmatians. But they don't. No. But, yeah, but, but and no one dies or is... is nothing bad nothing happens bad to Fuller. Nothing bad happens to but Fuller. I, I wonder yeah. if a bunch of kids watching this would have a revelation of like, my dad's a piece of shit. Yeah, but He's then, just they like need Frank. To learn. I mean, yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> arguably, I think that's... A, I think the earlier you learn that, if that's true, the better, in a way. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely think you, you, you can do that. And again, I, I do think 1995 is the kind of era... Well, the, probably the last era you can it's do that true. before it starts getting to... Yeah, I don't know. I'm still just... I can't get over you, that. You don't have to. I can't get over Frank being a dick. Why? He's a complete wanker. Because he's not... He could be a he, dick up to a point. You're saying he's a dick, not a monster, basically. Yeah, I yeah. think that there's a big difference there between... I've seen you, his porno and he's a dick monster. <laughs> I think you've, you've made him into a psychopath rather than just a What's jerk. What's wrong with that? You made difference. Kevin a psychopath. We didn't make Kevin a psychopath. We made Kevin someone who had PTSD. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. But still... Oh, it's getting heated yeah. this way. Yeah, it is. It's it's really this fucking is getting heated. fucking intense. I didn't think Home Alone 4 would be this way. You've already won the series, you wankers. <laughs> <laughs> Just ease off. Yes. Sorry, yes. Um, no, I, I genuinely believe it's perfectly fine. You can have these awful people. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's, again... Well, no, there's nothing there's, wrong with that. There's a lot wrong with being a terrible oh, dad. Oh, yes, my apologies. That's true, <laughs> yeah, yes. There's, yeah. But no, there's nothing wrong I with it. I don't think Matthew is implying that... <laughs> Frank is the best person <laughs> in the world. I would vote him for president. Actually, that I'm would a be a step up. <laughs> yeah. Frank yeah. McAllister for president. <laughs> 2020. Frank 2020, yeah. Hey, there we go. Yeah, there's a crossover. Yeah. yeah, I know. Draw that poster, listeners. Over to We Need to Forget About Kevin. I have a good question about... I guess it more turns into... It's a bit of a retread of the first one, and that you've got Kevin versus Harry and Marv again. And you, you freshen it up with the 21st century stuff, but I do worry that I don't know that, that if that would switch some people off, and and people just think, oh, it's kind of a retreading the, the the first one again, kind of thing. I don't think that's ever switched an audience off a sequel. Well, unfortunately, mm, as we've discussed many a time, soft reboot. Yeah, it is sort of. We deliberately made. I mean. Katie is the main kid, and she is deliberately older than Kevin is. You've got Jesse, who's about the same age that Kevin is in the first film. We deliberately made her older and made her 
made them pre-teens, basically, because we wanted that to change that dynamic a bit as well. And because it is set in a different period, they have a different reaction to this situation that they find themselves in. There's the idea that they've grown up very differently. I like the idea that they're not part of a super huge family as well. This idea that everybody from the McAllisters has gone off and had fewer fewer kids just because that's what tends to, to happen as generations go on. So they, they live in a different world and we put them in a, in a scenario that they would deal with differently. Mm. And bringing Kevin in then kind of changed that dynamic a bit. One, because you get to see... I thought it was fun to have that character and see the repercussions of That was the thing. I think it was just very funny to see how this fictional character can be horribly warped by everything that's happened, because that would happen. And it's a meta-commentary on Macaulay Culkin and his career as well. But yeah, we had to go that way, because making him look normal... Good fucking luck. You've seen the the short online. Yeah, Uh, yeah. There was an element of that as well, and I think for the listeners, what's the short online? I can't remember it's called, Um, but it's basically it's a Home Alone retread. It's a it's like a five minute parody thing where he is basically recounting recounting this thing that has happened to him. But it kind of implies that it goes full way to implying that he's basically just a psychopath now because of these things. It takes it to the to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, he, he ties that guy down and starts screaming at him, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just seemed like from that, it was like, yeah, there you could do something with this. And also then in terms of casting Macaulay Culkin, it's seeing that that makes you go, Macaulay Culkin might actually be up for doing something like this if it was meta enough and if it was commentary enough and if it was clever enough. They're actually getting him back into the, that movie and playing The huge problem movie. with our pitch is how the hell do the people designing a poster try and make Macaulay Culkin look inviting to an audience these days? Have you seen what he looks like like this year, though? Because Macaulay Culkin's in a new thing with, I think, Seth Rogen and has put on weight and now looks normal. Yeah, yeah, he's he's ah. he's back to his. So if we yeah. could have fed him some pies in 2010, <laughs> he'd have been all right. Pies instead of heroin. <laughs> There's heroin in the pies, Macaulay. Eating. <laughs> Hang Tuck on, in. this is just fudge. <laughs> fudge pie. I'm hoping that you'd have him wearing that infamous like Inception T-shirt with him wearing the T-shirt. Yeah, Ryan Gosling that's how uh, that kind of that's how ours ends. Um, Harry and Marv fall into it. Sucks <laughs> 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 off into yeah, it. Yeah, we told you that uh, we told you that the kid McAllister's traps were high tech. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's transdimensional. <laughs> yeah, the the Phantom Zone. <laughs> That's how I understand the computers work these days. How the, what the fuck was the Phantom Zone in the movies? Just like they had to look at oh! they had to look out of a window for all eternity. Yeah. What flipping out of windows? Oh, throwing his face. And last little quick question: Hasn't Joe Pesci retired at that point in well, 2010? Sort of. I think the thing with Pesci's role in it is that it is effectively a glorified cameo. Oh, yeah. They only really show up in the both of them in the in the final third and i mean he is still doing bits and pieces but not full time but we figured again if the money was right but because it's kind of meta as well and kind of i I do wonder if that would um if that would bring him back to it as well because with this being such a a spin on home alone i my hope would be that there's enough to bring in the original cast and and yeah and get them to do it just because it is something that's a bit different fair enough i like the idea of you two like pitching it to the studio at X, and we're like, well, you've got to go and speak to Joe Pesci and Macaulay Culkin about bringing them back to this franchise. We're like, yeah. right, Shit. bag of heroin on a stick for Culkin, and <laughs> bag of heroin on a stick for Joe Pesci. <laughs> Daniel Stern, 
Well. <laughs> <laughs> heroin? Heroin forever. But Turns out heroin's on back. a three for two deal at the moment. Perfect. <laughs> Being sold by we Macaulay Culkin. We got us a home alone. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. So I suppose it's that time in the show, in episode seven of season two, mm-hmm. for me to render my decision. I never thought Home Alone 3 would be such a divisive... It's been the most divisive uh, one of the to be fair. Episode, episode conflicted episode, yeah, yeah. I feel like this is the most opposing you've ever been to each other. Like, you started off... Oh, I don't know, I think it's just Alec. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, it's just, just Alec being off It's just that angry. Matt doesn't like Alec, basically. I love you, Matt. Yeah, I know, I love you too, Alec. Verdict time. It is verdict time, and it's a tough one. I didn't realise I would enjoy Home Alone 3 pitches so much. <laughs> I really like what you guys did, Finn Whittington, with changing the, the location, going Chicago, New York, London. I like the ridiculous cockneyness that you managed to squeeze in there. Tom Martin, Matt Stogden, famous cockneys. <laughs> <laughs> infamous, infamous cockneys. Infamous cockneys. Infamous cockneys that we are. North London, Highbury Forever. Close enough. <laughs> don't don't say that. No, no, it's like no, two. No, no. Actually, it's just one borough. <laughs> I love the casting of Bob Hoskins is inspired. It's something we've been wanting to do for a while since episode one. It's a personal goal of ours. Can he be the shark? Oh, no. can he be Batman? Oh, can he be Robo? And we've done we've done the double now. We've yes. done Winston and Hopk and uh, oh yeah yeah. So, uh, a Cockney double barrel, as they well, call no, it. Well, no, we need to, we need to do the triple, um, the triple, which we, we need to get Danny Dyer in something. Oh, we, God. And, uh, God. Jason Statham. And Statham. But... And then put them all in a bin. Anyway. I really, really enjoyed Mark Williams, because I'm a huge Fast Show fan. Excellent, excellent choice. And Hugh Laurie as well. Not famous for the things you mentioned. <laughs> no, famous well, that for House. Kind of a, a, that was, you know. I don't, I'm I was point that Williams didn't say, you ain't seen me. Right. right. Oh, that would have been good, mm. yeah. Or this this week I've mostly been stealing and then yes yeah that would have been good and I really enjoyed you guys doing the kind of PTSD twist on Kevin McAllister actually having to deal with shit rather than just like hey it's all fun and games and ha 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 and you guys kind of had that as well um, you guys being Finn Whittington taking it dark with the you both kind of took it into more realistic terms even though you had the batshit crazy traps again of. You deal with the family abandonment issues that are just like, ha, 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 it's fine. And then you guys deal with the PTSD of, he's probably like mortally wounded a bunch of people and fuck, yeah. yeah has experienced the same thing twice, like lightning struck twice. So, of course, he'd be really paranoid. And, thrice in our case. Well, now thrice, yeah, exactly, yeah. See, I would argue he was even darker. You completely fucked him up even more. Ah, but he was better by the end. He had a redemptive <laughs> arc. He went to an amusement park. Yeah, He's cuddly old Uncle Kevin by the end of it. He's gonna get he's gonna get mauled by a carny. Something bad's happening to him at the festival. He's gonna be in a roller coaster accident. <laughs> like, the kids leave him. Jesus <laughs> Christ! He gets left there by his niece and nephew. He can't work out how to leave. He's a creepy long-haired guy. Actually, that is a question I meant to ask. Does he have long hair in this? No. Okay, no. Just, thank no. you very much. Oh God, no! With a buzz oh cut and scars. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah, PTSD. you just said. Yeah, my apologies. Yep. He's got a tattoo that says "Born to Kill" across his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> he will also ta- be playing the role of the Joker in a future. <laughs> the worst tattoo I ever saw was the first time I went to Camden many years ago, and there was a bloke walking down with cunt mangler. Wow! I bet he works in the solicitors. You know? <laughs> as much as I just slagged off the East End London, Camden's my neck of the woods. So, 
Do you yep. know Kevin <laughs> That's my mum. <laughs> I do suspect that it wasn't permanent, but I really didn't want to stare because I mean, sometimes you can work it out. Like, Let's face it, that's the kind idea. of thing that says stare at this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. The abandoned yeah. Batman villain from the old 60s <laughs> TV series. He turns far enough, he transforms into cunt man. <laughs> oh, oh sorry, yeah. I really like your casting choices as well. Um, Chloe Grace Moretz is fantastic. And Jurassic World Kid, whose name I can never remember. Yeah. You guys said that name, and I was like, I have no idea who that is. And you're like, oh, yeah, that kid, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're both really good and, and inspired choices for the Precocious the kids. but not obnoxious. Which, mm. again, Home Alone 3 and its various sequels did not understand. There's a spate of really good child actors emerging. Yeah, actually, I'd agree there's with a, that. A lot of people coming, coming through that. It's a shame about some of the films they've been in. Cough, Jurassic World, Cough. Oh, yeah, Jurassic but, World. Yeah. We'll get around to the Jurassic franchise at some point, don't worry. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, a lot of ground to cover there. Yes, yes. You could sequelize basically all of them apart from the first one. I would agree Anyway, time for my decision. And... I'm going to give it to you. We need to forget about Kevin. Congratulations, gentlemen. That wins the season for you. Five so wins. So we're going to skip the next one. Right, bye. Right, bye, Rob. Yeah, right. <laughs> see you in hell. <sighs> that wraps the season. I'll see you later. <laughs> Congratulations, Alec. Congratulations, Stuart. Mm-hmm. Five wins means you win you season get two. So you're a season apiece mm, yes, going true. into season three. That's very interesting. But we do still have one episode left. We do. So this is, this is bragging rights, gentlemen. Fuck off. <laughs> Bragging rights. You know what I mean. We might do okay. I think the ball is firmly in your court on this one, though. This is a Matt Stockton special right here, yeah. So for the season two finale, we're going to be talking about and fixing The Godfather Part 3. Yeah. You said Part 2, people. Oh, people, yeah. people would have just... I left it tables. hanging there on purpose because like, our fans get angry there's gonna quickly. Be, there's going to be people that just I mean, pause it at that point and send a shit through oh, the post. Yeah. You're fixing The Godfather. It's perfect. Godfather 3 is another one of those films that is like Alien 3 where it's like, it's really not that bad, but... Compared to two of the most critically acclaimed films of all uh, time. Course, course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, needs exactly. A good, needs a good... Spit polish and fix. Yeah. Oh, to play for Tom. Oh wait. Oh no. wait. No. <laughs> I can't Tom, keep dramatic tension for the sake of dramatic. With some kind of like special prize for the last for the last episode, just based on the Godfather pitch. Uh, wait, releasing but- pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> the winner gets to release his pigeon on the loser's chest. <laughs> that's, that's the prize. <laughs> in that situation I am I'm whoever, filming it whoever whoever wins we lose no 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 we, we are very professional we just uh, we, we look forward to the pitches it'll be really good yeah it's going to yeah. be really fun yeah. yeah and we're plotting our glorious glorious revenge for season 3 already mm. it's mostly murder uh, glorious revenge of season blood load yeah. yeah so former street sharks Street Sharks. Long day since we were Street yeah, Sharks. Yeah. Finn Whittington. <laughs> I like Finn Whittington. Good. You see, you may have lost the episode, but you've won the heart of Alec Flanagan. Oh. Which is which is a disgusting, beating organ of hatred. That, uh, Mine's a bit of flint. It's all right. Explained a lot. Matthew Stogden, how yes. can people follow you on the internet? You can go to Twitter or Instagram, and you can go and type in S-T-O-G-H-Z, which spells Stogs, and I'm so close to the microphone. And if you go to the redrighthand.co.uk, you can see my film reviews. And if you go to cheeseman.com, you can see the films that we make. And you should do that. Thank you. It's like you were actually inside me. At, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a... Tom Martin. 
How can people follow you on the internet? Well, thank you very much, Jack. Um, <laughs> I'm also going to do the close mic approach. For yeah, because if we can't win, we're just going to seduce we're just you. We're going to seduce you. <laughs> you uh, won the hearts with and us. vaginas of the listeners. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think and that those... I, yeah, I was going to say, come on, Don't Jack. forget the penis. Don't forget the penises. <laughs> You can find, uh, when I'm not sequelizing, I run a production company and we make films for a variety of different people. Uh, and you can find uh, our films and all that manner of stuff and information about that. And in- indeed, if you want to hire me to make films for, me- for you guys, uh, you can do that by visiting... Sexy film. They're not that sexy, Alec. <laughs> They're sexy if you like... sound sexy. They're Tom Martin's grade A kink. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, we don't make porn. You'll find that out if you visit our website, which is weareforward.uk. And if you want to follow us on all the social stuff we usually post lots of behind the scenes and pictures of cameras and stuff so if that floats your boat you can find us on at made by forward on instagram twitter and facebook and finally if you'd like to follow me my personal account of the shenanigans i get up to when i'm not doing either of those things you can find me on at tom martin underscore 89 so that's me on the internet thank you alec plowman how can people follow you on the internet well, firstly, I'm not sure if I should do this in a saucy voice. Everybody else has done this in a saucy voice. Alec Plowman is a happening man about town on Twitter. And you can follow him on Twitter at Alec underscore Plowman. When I'm not busy sequelizing, I make sweet, sweet music in a band called Monster City with my partner in seducing riffs, Mr. Jack Lawrence William Chambers on the bass guitar, the sexiest of all the guitars. So feel free to check that out. Great music to seduce a lady or fella to... Anyway, that's me. That's where you can find me and shit. Speaking of seducing ladies and fellas, Stuart Ashen, how can people find you on the internet? Why, hello. I'm (laughs) glad you asked. Halloween is approaching. At the stroke of midnight on Halloween, at your local time, ensure that every electric device in your house is unplugged and all the lights are off. At exactly the stroke of midnight, as it changes from 31st to the 1st of November... All the phones in your house will ring. Answer any of them. A child's voice will say, Who do you seek? And you must answer, Ashens. Then hang up immediately. And from then on, any screen you see will play nothing but my videos. Jack Lawrence William Chambers. You know what you need to do, Jack? Sexy bass man. Tell us about your uh, erotic adventures in internet land and where people can find your unique brand of smut. You can find my unique brand of smut and JLW Chambers on basically everything. Maybe even on you. By the way, um, you should be paying like uh, 85p a minute for this shit. <laughs> so um, check with your... Check, yeah, with, check with your parent or guardian. Yeah. Yeah. Jack does it live. Please ask your bill payers permission before, yeah, before uh, continuing to with this, this podcast. podcast listening. You can follow the show at Sequelizers. How do you spell that, Jack? How do you, yeah. S-E-Q. U-E-L-I-S-E-R-S. Sequelizers. If you play your cards right, Jack, they sequelize you next. <laughs> If you'd like to send your unique brand of smart to us by email, sequelizers at gmail.com. To send us your smart comments, questions, anything like that, sequelizers at gmail.com is the place to send it to. It mm. is. Next up, the season finale of season two, Godfather Part 3. I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's going to be good fun. There will be a special prize involved. Ooh, so is it a ready. pizza pie? Is it, is it four points so that we can actually win? Fuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> we will make them a pitch that Jack can't refuse. Oh. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.